There are four themes to Advent. Like we talked about the first one last week. It's the theme of hope. Then there's the theme of peace and joy and love. Today we're talking about peace, as, as we just mentioned. And, and here's what's interesting about peace. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but peace is everywhere this time of year, specifically the word peace. Uh, I've seen it on billboards. Uh, I've seen it in store windows. I've seen it, uh, I've heard it in Christmas carols and songs while you're walking around. I mean, I know a lot has been edited out of this season in our culture, but the word peace is still alive and well, right? Uh, I see it in, in like ugly sweaters. I've seen ugly, very ugly sweaters with the word peace on them. Uh, it's just, it, we have decorations in our houses that say peace. I know for us, um, yesterday Sherry was decorating our house here in, in Beaverton and she put up the little can, the stocking holder on our mantle and it is five simple letters and it spells the word, guess what? Peace, peace right? And so I'm sitting at home looking at this and all I can think of is this word is everywhere. This time of year, everyone seems to see the word peace. But there's a real irony in this and that's that I also think that at the same time, is probably just as true is that we don't actually experience it this time of year. We see it everywhere, and yet the season is almost the antithesis of this. In fact, I don't even think just this season, but I just think in life, we have this familiarity with the word peace, and yet if you look at human experience, not just, not just human experience right now in this moment, in this season, but I just think human experience in general, peace is a very elusive feeling for us in our society today. Um, and I, I even think beyond that, we, we talk about nations. It's very difficult to see peace in nations. We talk about uh, cultures. We see peace being broken apart in cultures. We see it in families. It's very hard to, to come by in families and people groups. Um, it's hard to come by as individuals to experience this thing called peace. And yet when we dwell on the word, when we think about the idea of peace, there's some sort of promise in that word that speaks to the depths of our soul. And we say, there's something that I want. There's something I desire in that word peace. There's an experience that I'm longing for. But it seems like no matter what, it's always just beyond our reach. One more step, no matter what we do, we're just never able to grab a hold of this thing called peace. Which really brings up a good question for us. And that's, why is it so hard for us to find peace? Why is it so hard for us to find peace? I mean, here, here's the deal. Peace seems like a pretty good thing to be longing after, doesn't it? I mean, we're not longing after a, a new Lexus with a red bow on the top, right? Like well, some of us are. But, but for the most of us, we go, well, peace is actually a pretty good thing to long after. Why in the world is it so difficult to get something that seems so good? Why is it so hard to find something when it's clearly such a good thing? Well, maybe it has less to do with what it is we're chasing and the means by which we're actually chasing it. Um, maybe it's because for us, we're actually chasing a mirage of what we think peace is rather than finding peace for what it really is. See, it's, it's sort of like this. When we look for peace, it's like we get this deck of cards handed to us from our culture, and we just keep taking cards off the top of the deck, and our culture is telling us, oh, if you want peace, well, then draw another card. If you want peace, take another card. And we keep taking these cues, taking these cards from our culture that tell us where to find peace. And so we look for ultimate rest. We look for peaceful soul rest in things like sturdy finances. Which, by the way, I don't know about you, but that seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Or, or we, look for, we look for peace by possessing certain objects. Maybe we do get the car with the bow on the top. We get our physical environment just right. We decorate the house. We sort of get everything set up just right. We accumulate the stuff. Um, we, we can do all those sorts of things, looking for some sort of peace. We can organize our life. We can just get the calendar straight and the closets clean, and then we'll have peace, right? We even use substances to sort of ignore other things and find just some sort of momentary peace, right? Which here's the irony of all these things. They all work. 
for about that long, don't they? They all work long enough just to hook us in, just to get us to this place where we think, well, I kind of felt pretty good, and as soon as one wears out, we just go back to the deck and we draw another card. And we say, okay, I need another thing. What else does my culture tell me I need to find this piece? And so these things seem to work, but just enough to lead us on and always feel us, leave us feeling wanting. So the, so the question is, where is a peace that lasts? There's nothing wrong with the pursuit of peace. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that our means of finding it, our understanding of what would provide it, are actually incredibly messed up and backwards from what we actually think. And, and maybe the arrival of, of Advent, maybe this season, maybe one of the reasons that peace is such a predominant theme of this time of year is that it's the greatest longing that we have. And so we come to this time and we say, I just want to experience this thing called peace. So I think if we tune our ear in, if we lean into our culture and we listen closely, I think if we really pay attention, just sort of open our eyes, what we see is a culture that is crying out in desperation for something that looks like real peace. Are you with me in this? There's a cry that seems to be coming out of every corner of culture that says we want something, we just don't know how to get it. People want peace. We just need to remember where to find it. And here's what's interesting, and here's what's really good news. Which, by the way, some of you are waiting for the good news. Like, in the last five minutes, you just lost all your peace, right? You're like, ah, what am I going to do, right? So give us some good news. Well, let me give you some good news. Here, here's the good news. We are not the first ones to feel this way. We're in good company. We're not the first people to feel like peace was something that was outside of our reach. And that brings us to one of the first stories that actually shows us what God is doing in the world to give us peace. In fact, if you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to, to Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Um, I want to look at the story of the Exodus for just a moment. We're going to look at a few other passages. But let me just explain why you're opening there. The Exodus um, opens up with Egypt being the superpower of the day. Egypt is this massive nation. They're the powerful nation. And they are led by a ruler who is named Pharaoh. And they are the ones that have all of the power. They're the ones that have all of the influence. It literally is an empire. And the Pharaoh recognizes that there is this group of people living within the borders of his empire that are rising in fame and and favor. They're actually gaining in numbers, and their situation is getting better the longer they live within the borders of this particular nation. And so Pharaoh decides that these people are a threat, and because they're a threat, he chooses to enslave them. And those people are called the people of Israel. The Hebrew people become slaves to the Pharaoh because they were a threat to the empire. And so the nation, this, this nation of Egypt is built on the backs of of Israelite slave labor. They literally make bricks day after day. They place bricks day after day, working as slaves to this empire. And so the book of Exodus opens up with this picture of what's taking place, and then there's a disruption. There's a disruption, and things begin to change, and they begin to shift when we read this. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God and God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob and so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them I love that last sentence God looked upon the Israelites in fact, if you keep reading a few more verses, you see that the story turns to this guy who you're introduced to in chapter 1 of Exodus, a guy named Moses. 
And Moses has this encounter with God in which God speaks to him. And this is what God says to Moses in this moment. Shortly after what we just read, it says this in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Can I just remind you of a few things that get said here? The cry has reached me. The cry has reached me, God says. I have seen the misery of my people. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And I have come to rescue them. I love this story because in one of the first stories where we're seeing God begin to reveal who he is in the scriptures, God is showing us as a God who sees and hears. He's a God who sees us in moments like this and hears us in moments like this. Now now the Hebrew word actually that's used for the word cry, when it says the people of Israel, they cried out, is the Hebrew word tasak. Say that one with me. Say tasak. Okay, you guys are mediocre. Your Hebrew will get better as the day goes on, I promise. So, so tasak is this word to cry. And so we find this word, what's the word? Tasak, there you go, tasak. You find this word, you're getting better already. You find it throughout the Bible. And the word tasak was originally being used, it was used to describe the expression of pain or sort of this like, this involuntary utterance that comes out of you when you get hurt. Right, so like when you get up in the middle of the night and you stub your toe on the dresser, there's that like, you don't choose to do it, you just make a noise thing that comes out. That's tasak, right? When you smash your finger with a hammer, whatever comes out, is to sock, right? Doesn't matter what it is. It is involuntary. It is just to sock. It is just how you feel. It is just this utterance of pain, right? There's this noise. There's like, you kind of lose your wind. You can't breathe for just a second. There's that, you know, there's that moment of like, ah, what is that? That is the word to sock that is being used to describe the cry of the people of Israel. When a child gets hurt and can't help but cry, that is to sock. You can't help but cry. Now, here, here's what's interesting about this word, tasak. Not only does it describe an expression, but it always, always carries with it also a question or a series of questions. When we cry out, there's a question like, where is the justice? Why did this happen? Does anybody see me? Does anybody hear me? When a child cries, it's, is somebody going to rescue me in this moment? To sock is this alerting to things are not the way they are supposed to be. So the people of Israel, they are oppressed and they're in misery and they're suffering. And when they to sock, God hears them. This is a God who hears their cry. By the way, this is central to who God is. This is central to our understanding based on the Bible, who he is. He always hears the cries of the oppressed. And this particular cry, this inaugurates something in history. It it sort of kicks things into gear and shakes things up and gets life moving for these particular people. The cry, the tasak, the God, do you see me, is the catalyst or the cause or the reason that this story begins to unfold the way that it does. And it also introduces this other word, the Hebrew word yada. 
Say that one with me. Say yada. See, you guys are getting way better now. You got it, right? Yada, yada. Now, this is a really loaded word because um, it, it's, it's so rich in meaning, but the way it's translated in some places sort of leaves us with a shallow understanding. Frequently, the word yada is translated from Hebrew to English as the word see. And when we hear like God sees, it's sort of a distant two-dimensional understanding, right? It's like uh, a kid who crashes on their bike and dad sees them from the porch, like 200 yards away, and is like, brush yourself up and get back on your bike. That's yada, if you're just talking about seeing, right? I see you, I see you, don't be such a crybaby, get on your bike and go, right? And some of us think that that's how God operates, right? He hears our to sock, and then from a distance, he sort of calls out and says, all right, all right, shake yourself off, I love you, come on, get back on your bike and go. But the word yada is not just translated to see. The word yada is also translated to know. To know someone, to experience something of who they are. And so the kind of seeing that we're talking about when we say God sees, the kind of hearing that we're talking about when God hears is this yada of knowing. God knows what you're going through. He doesn't just hear it, he feels it. He experiences, there's something visceral inside of it. If if you've ever had somebody you love suffer and you stood by their bedside and you felt helpless, you have experienced yada. If you've ever wanted to use everything in your power to alleviate a situation, you have experienced yada. That is what God responds with. To our tasak, God yadas, he sees, he knows your oppression, and he wants to do something about it. The people cry out. And so in Exodus, immediately we begin to see this story unravel. The story begin to be told of a God who is, who is beautiful beyond what we would ever imagine. He sees us and knows us and is there with us. Now, let's fast forward to someplace else in the Bible for a moment. Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 4, the New Testament. Um, Luke chapter 4, Luke is a a biography of Jesus, and Luke's biography of Jesus is very unique. There's this one particular story that I love in chapter 4 where Jesus, the new rabbi on the block, shows up at the synagogue. Um, For those of you that didn't know this, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He grew up in the rabbinical system, went through the entire process. And when Jesus emerges on the scene during his public ministry, he's actually a a normal Jewish rabbi in, in every normal sense, except for the fact that he's Jesus, right? So he's, he shows up on the scene, here's Rabbi Jesus, and he comes to the synagogue, and in Luke chapter 4, we have what is probably the first recorded sermon of Jesus. It's the first time that Jesus ever goes to the synagogue that we have recorded where he teaches. And there's this really interesting thing that happens as he does this. You can imagine that if it's his first time speaking, if it's his first time doing this, that whatever Jesus is about to say might be fairly significant. And so in Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus gets up in this gathering, he goes to the front of the room, and this is what happens next. It says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set liberty at those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he goes to the front of the room, and this attendant is standing there, and he just hands him the scroll of Isaiah. 
Jesus gets the scroll, and this would be the picture. It says he literally finds the place. I mean, Jesus is sort of rolling through, like, man, Isaiah's a big book, right? Just going through. There's no, like, iPad. He could just search or swipe or whatever. He's just rolling, rolling, rolling. And then he comes to this particular place. And he reads verses about bringing good news to the poor and about liberty to captives and about sight for the blind, about freedom for the oppressed, about delivering the year of the Lord's favor. And then if you read on in the text, it says that Jesus, after he reads this, which is essentially just an announcement, he rolls it up, he hands it back to the attendant, he goes and he sits down, as would have been the custom, where they would have explained what the text meant. Jesus literally just sits down and says one sentence, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. Basically, mic drop, right? In this moment, Jesus said, that is who I am. You know the cries of the captives? You know the cries of the blind? You know the cries of the oppressed? Jesus says in this moment, God has heard your cries. He has seen you, and I am here. I am the answer, and I declare the year of the Lord's favor. And again, we see God's heart. It's exactly what we saw in Egypt. It's exactly what Isaiah had written down hundreds of years before this moment in Luke chapter 4. And now Jesus is announcing it again. This is why I'm here. There is favor. There is flourishing to the people who need it the most, the oppressed. See, that is what God is wanting to deliver to humanity. And he uses unusual means to deliver that to people. Even unusual circumstances like this. Another story, another example. The year is 586 BC. The people of Israel have been conquered by the nation of Babylon. They've been carried off. The best, the brightest, the wealthiest have been carried off to the brutal city of Babylon. It is a beautiful, culturally diverse, rich city, but it is a brutal city for people like these people. And they're carried off to this city, and the whole idea behind this exile that they're experiencing or being carried off as refugees to this place, the whole concept behind it was that the Babylonians didn't want to just kill the men and enslave the women. They believed there was another way to create world domination. They believed if we could just assimilate you into our culture then we wouldn't have to worry about you in the future. And so they would bring you to the city and you, they, would, they would allow you to eat their food and drink their wine and experience their customs. And their whole understanding was this. Our culture is so powerful and so dominant that yeah, 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 you'll still call yourselves Israelites, but we all know you're just Babylonians. That was their idea. You're, you're gonna... You're gonna you're going to be an Israelite, but you're really going to be a Babylonian. So these people come, and when they get there, they realize this is what's going to take place. And they see there's only one of two options. If we actually move into the city, if we actually allow them to, to put their culture upon us, then we're going to lose our sense of identity. We are going to forget who we are as God's people. And so the only other option is that we live on the outskirts of the city. That we, that we create a little village, a little shanty town, and we just kind of keep ourselves separated from Babylon. We interact with it as little as possible, and we just wait for that sweet by and by when the sweet chariot rolls on by and takes us back to the land of Egypt. We're just going to protect ourselves here while that culture is there and hope that the end will just come before we have to live with those people. That's what they believed until Jeremiah shows up and tells them something really different. So Jeremiah chapter 29 is one of my favorite passages, but not the part you think, not verse 11, but actually starting in verse 4, because God shows a third way for people to live. 
And in verse 4, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles, all of the refugees whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now the first part of this would have been so incredibly disorienting for these people. He talks about this place and he says, this is the place that I have sent you. They would have heard this and said, no, 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 God, that wasn't you. That was the Babylonians that brought us here. And God says, no, no, the Babylonians didn't bring you here. I brought you here. There's a whole other sermon in this, by the way. I won't do it today for time's sake, right? But but God says, I brought you here, and I brought you here for a reason. How, How many of us have looked at our circumstances, and we blamed our circumstances for the place that we are? Oh, it was a job that brought me here. It was a transfer. It was a relationship that I pursued. It was circumstances in my family that got me here. And and maybe you look at your circumstances, your situation, you say, is there some way out? Why am I here? Why am I in this place? Why did I let money drive a decision like that? There's all these different things. Many of us can find ourselves at places at time and blame, blame all of the circumstances for why we're there when in reality, God looks at us and says, no, 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 I brought you to this place for such a season as this. See, the people of Israel, they, they weren't where they, want, where they wanted to be, but that did not mean that God wasn't the one who brought them there. And he brought them there for a purpose. He says, I brought you here, and here's why. And he goes on and he says, I want you to build houses, and I want you to plant gardens. I want you to have sons and daughters here, and I want them to have sons and daughters. And, and basically what he's saying is, I want you to move into the city, and you're going to be here for a while. I mean, if you're going to plant a garden, and you don't have Home Depot where you can buy sprouts, that means you're going to be here a while. You're starting with seeds, and you're going to watch those things grow and produce. You're going to be here for a while. He says, move into the city, multiply there. And then we get to verse 7. And in verse 7, he says... Seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you to. That word welfare, or peace in some of your Bibles, is the same Hebrew word that Alex was describing a moment ago. It is the word shalom. Shalom. So this is so critical because shalom is not just some sort of greeting. Shalom is this blessing that a person offers another person, right? Shalom literally means, to put it in different language, shalom is human flourishing on every level. That is the idea of shalom. It is, it is every category of life, things being the way God intended them to be. That is shalom. That is peace. That's the welfare that God is talking about. It, it is spiritual and it is physical and it is emotional. It is relational. It, it's it's financial, it's racial, it's judicial. On every level, things are functioning the way that God intended them to function. That is the idea of shalom. And God tells these people, he says, I want you to seek the shalom of Babylon. I don't want you to hide from Babylon. I don't want you to avoid Babylon. I want you to seek the shalom of Babylon. That is why you are here. And then one of the greatest revelations in all of scripture, especially for us in our culture today, he connects the shalom that they are pursuing, the peace that is so elusive for them and for us, he connects it to the shalom of the city. And check this out, verse seven. This is such a powerful verse. Listen to this. 
He says, seek the shalom of the city to where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare or shalom or peace. That is where you find shalom. In its welfare, you find your welfare. Your shalom is found working for their shalom. You serving the city, serving Babylon, results in your peace. And so he tells them, I want you to move in. I want you to buy a house, and I want you to plant a garden. I want you to start a business. I want you to get a job. I want you to send your kids to school. I want you to to go into restaurants. I want you to coach soccer, and I want you to stand on sidelines with parents. I want you to have conversations, and I want you to serve the place where I have carried you. And in your doing so, you will be an instrument of shalom everywhere you go. It's sort of right here, we see all of this start coming together, right? All of it starts to come together. God has a plan, and there's this thread that's running through all of these stories. There's this theme. And it reveals one of the greatest kingdom principles found in the Bible. Who brought peace to Babylon? Well, the church answer is God did. But he used the people of Israel in exile, right? Or back in the Exodus, who heard the cries of the people? God heard the cries, right? But who did he send? He sent Moses. Check this out. Verse verse 9, we already read this verse, Exodus chapter 3. He says, God says, Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And then God said, I will be with you. Anybody else identify with Moses in this? Like we sit here this morning, you're like, yeah, you know what? Somebody should seek the peace of Babylon all around us every day. And then somebody says, but that's you. And you go, whoa, 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 not me. (laughs) Not me, why me? And God says, no, it's you, but I'm gonna be with you. God sees the cry, but he's sending you. You are God's answer to the brokenness of the culture that's around us. And the peace that we're pursuing, the peace that seems so elusive in our culture, it is not found when you fulfill whatever that next card on the top of the deck tells you you should take. That's not when it's found. It is found when you pursue shalom on behalf of others. See, the people of God find peace when they pursue it for other people. That's when we find peace. That's what this whole thing is all about, which by the way, sometimes, and this is a side note, sometimes I hear people say, you know, I just, I'm frustrated with the church. It really didn't deliver on what I wanted. And I think oftentimes that's because what the church has promised is a form of peace that looks just like that deck of cards that our culture is giving us. Come to church and get this and get that. We just throw the cards out. But what we're saying is completely upside down and backwards of our culture. The church doesn't say, I'm here so that you can get all your wildest dreams fulfilled. The church says, no, we're here to help you pursue the peace of others because that's where you're going to find your peace. When you pursue the shalom of other people, that is completely upside down and backwards of everything that is hardwired into our cultural mindset. And I think it's why peace is so elusive and why this time of year there's so many people talking about it. See, 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 peace is a part of the Advent because we not only long for it, but in the birth of Christ, we find it. 
That is the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of what's happening at Christmas. We have a God who sends a son to us. He sees us. He hears our tasak, and he knows, and so he sends his son. And by, by the way, when he sends his son, do you think this place looks a little bit like Babylon to them? Probably, right? And that son, what does he do? He brings shalom. He heals what's broken. He makes peace. But what else does he do? He invites us to join him. He invites us to join him. Just like, just like Moses, God says, I'm sending you. Just, just like Babylon, he goes, no, no, it's you. You're the answer to this. And before we can complain or say anything about it, uh, like, I want my peace, I want my shalom my way, then, then you start hearing the things that Jesus actually said. Like this in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the shalom bringers, if you will. I don't think that's good English, but it doesn't matter, it works, right? Blessed are the shalom deliverers. For they are the sons and the daughters of God. Or he says this in Luke 9. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever says, I'm going to just keep grabbing cards and I'm going to find peace my way. And I think I've got the answers. He says, no, at the end of that road, you will lose everything that you loved. But whoever loses their life for me, my sake, the gospel, for my purposes of bringing shalom, they will save their life. And then in verse 25, he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their very self? Your soul, your peace is found when you pursue the purposes of Jesus. That is where you find peace. I love this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, God has made peace. He's humbled himself and his son to produce it. That's why peacemakers are children of God. What they do is repeat what God has done. Amen? See, even a deeply anti-religious person living in our culture today, this is all over the place. You could be completely anti-religious and you'll still affirm the same thing that I'm gonna affirm and that's that something is seriously wrong with our society. We live in a world where there is still slavery. We live in a world where the Solomon Islands still don't have clean water. We live in a world where people, millions of people, probably around 800 million people will go hungry tonight because they can't afford one meal today. That's the world that we live in today. We live in a world where people are bound by religiosity and moralism. We live in a broken world, but there is a rescue mission that is being announced in the incarnation. There is a redemption mission. There is the grace of Jesus, and the grace of Jesus doesn't just change you. It changes everything. It changes everything. And when you and I receive the gospel, when we believe the gospel, there is a peace that is made in the depths of our soul with God. It is like God just looks at us and says, we're good. You and me, we're good. There's a peace, there's a wholeness. Like God says, I love you. I'm not watching you from the porch, I'm with you. When we rest in the gospel, that's what happens. And when we rest in that kind of peace, we become the kind of people who out of that can move into the city and deliver shalom and plant gardens and build houses and offer the love that God wants offered in his name. That is what happens when you and I receive what God gives us at the birth of his son. We are invited to join the God of the oppressed in doing something about our broken world. So... 
if we have any resources, if we have any power, if we have any voice, if we have any influence, if we have any energy, then we convert those things. We convert those resources. We convert those powerful moments. We convert our voice. We convert our influence and our energy for those that don't have any of it. Through that baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, the God of the universe, invites you, me, all of us to leave here today and go to our jobs and our neighborhoods, our friendships and our families, and to bring wholeness and shalom and peace. And when we do, we will find what we're looking for. Amen? Would you stand with me? May you be men and women who know the God who is Yadad, your Tesak. May you experience the shalom that he offers you and may you accept his call to be a peacemaker peacemaker in this world and in your neighborhood. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.